Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. Psalm 147, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praises becoming. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Let us remain standing and sing together hymn number one. seated. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you again for the hour of worship which is before us, and we are especially grateful and mindful of the beginning of a new year. And unlike the world with its unrealistic, baseless hopes of better things in a new year, it seems that's always the talk uh, Father, we, we, we understand that with, with the passage of time, there is the fulfilling of your purposes, your determined purposes concerning history. And so we as Christian people look forward to the future with great expectation and hope based upon firm realities and firm promises, even upon your very being. For the Lord is the one who speaks and who promises and who uh, determines the course of history. And you being the Lord, eternal, perfect, unchangeable, uh, and stable in all of your ways, we have total confidence that all that you do is right and just and perfect. And so, Lord, as we look forward to what is to us an uncertain and perhaps a day in which evil is rising, I, I mean a year, uh, it deem it, indeed it would seem to be so. Every indication is that, that things are only getting worse. Uh, Lord, we nevertheless trust and rest in your providence and your goodness. We especially ask you, O God, 
that, that you would uh, that you would continue to care for and sustain your church, that you would protect our gatherings and and enable us uh, throughout the years and the, and the days uh, to worship you. I pray that you would create a growing desire amongst your people to do so and that we would find uh, with each passing Sunday not a diminished but a growing desire to come back. Pray that we would find real blessing on the Sabbath day as we set one day and seven apart for your glory and our sanctification. And ask you that as your word is both read and preached, that we would be built up in our faith and encouraged and strengthened and, and, and even rebuked, Lord. For there are many sins which we bring into this day and into the new year. Uh, we ask you that uh, each of us would be progressing, not regressing in faith. We know that both are possibilities which uh, lie before us always. There is always the possibility of backsliding. Uh, but the day, the day is nearer than when we first begun. And, and we, we believe, oh God, that salvation is advancing both in the church and in our hearts. And we look forward to see the great things that you will do. And so the great thing that we ask for, oh God, is faith. Give to your church faith. Faith to face any eventuality, any hardship, any trial, even any temptation to sin. God, greatly strengthen your church. And would you continue, please, at the same time to clarify our place in the world. For, for days of trial and days of uncertainty are day, and days in which the world comes upon the church with fresh pressure and fresh power are days which uh, either reveal uh, a spirit of capitulation and worldliness in the church as we've seen so much all around us or as we hope to embody uh, only by your grace and your strength uh, a, a spirit of faithfulness and fidelity to Christ alone and his word. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you alone as the king of the church, not the king of the land, not uh, not the prince of the world, even Satan, but only you, only you. Let your rule be known in this place. We pray that it would especially be known as your word goes forth, that we as good disciples would sit under your teaching and that we would receive it in our hearts by faith and that we would be strengthened by that teaching and that as we uh, rise up and sing and go out of this place and all that we do, that we would grow in our love, uh, not only for our Savior, but also for our brother and for our families uh, and for a world that is perishing. Lord, we pray that uh, the love which you have for us would swell up in our hearts, a love which compels us to forgive, a love which compels us to serve. May we learn what it is as Christian people to look outward and not always inward. For as we look inward, there's very little good to be found and very little benefit which we derive just discouragement and despair. But as we look outward upon a Savior and a world in need of his salvation, our, our, our hearts are, um, are motivated to action and Christian living. We are aware suddenly of our purpose and our place in the world, which is once more to shine as lights, which we are only able to do, O oh God, as your light is shining in us and as we dwell in the light and as you hold us fast in the light, though we are prone to wander into the darkness and so, gracious Lord, we, we pray to you in your sovereignty and your power and your love to hold fast to your church because we are prone to slide away and to backslide. We pray that you would cause us to advance more and more in our own salvation and sanctification and that we would realize our true place in the world. And that with each new trial which you place upon us, that you would give us faith and discernment and wisdom and strength to lead the world. Lead the world not in the ways of politics or culture uh, that isn't our task, Lord, and we know it. But to lead the world in faith, here is a chance for us to do what the world cannot do. And if we will not do it, then who will? We are the only ones who are equipped to live the Christian life. We are the only ones who are full of the Holy Spirit. We are the only ones who are capable of demonstrating a true faith when men's hearts are failing. 
God, if not us, then who? And we ask you that you would give us this ability, and increasingly so. But then, dear Lord, as we close out our prayer, we remember those words you taught us to say. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The scripture reading, I want to read Psalm 110, which is a passage that we find often quoted in the book of Hebrews, indeed throughout the New Testament. It is a favorite psalm of these New Testament preachers as it shows forth the glory of Jesus Christ, both as a priest and as a king, uh, and both aspects to be stressed in uh, the Hebrews 10 passage that we'll consider shortly. Psalm 110, a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array. From the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Here's the verse we keep seeing. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, verse 4. Actually, verse 5 is what we find in our passage this morning. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief among or the chief over a broad country. Um, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. He will lift up his head. And now in response to God's word, let us stand together and sing the doxology. Salter Selection, number uh, 42, Salter Selection, 42, page 639 of your hymnal, Psalm 89. Read along with me in the bold. Let's see, I'm on the wrong page here. There we are. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. 
I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. And the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the congregation of the saints. For who in heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee or to thy faithfulness round about thee? Thou rulest the raging of the sea when the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the world and the fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm, strong is thy hand, and high is thy right hand. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Blessed is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day. And in thy righteousness shall they be exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and in thy favor our horn shall be exalted. For the Lord is our defense, and the Holy One of Israel is our King. Then thou spakest in vision to the Holy One, and said, I have laid help upon one that is mighty, I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him, with whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore. And my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with the stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from them, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, 
nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Let us stand now and sing praise to God, hymn 464. me now to Hebrews chapter 10 verses 1 through, or excuse me, verses 11 through 18. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 11 through 18. Once again, uh, the the contrast between the old and the new is what is being said here with uh, with a decided emphasis on the new as that which is better and perfect and complete. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering uh, time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them 
After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their hearts and on their mind. I will write them. He then says, in their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. And here's the conclusion. Uh, it's a major conclusion, it turns out. Now, where there is no, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the reading of your word. We ask you that by your grace, uh, it may, through the preaching, be opened up to us, not in a spectacular display of, of man-made wisdom or a display of, of uh, outward glory, for I do not possess those things, uh, but, but simply through the weakness of preaching, that by this humble means, just as through the weakness of the flesh of Christ broken on the cross, you might cause your grace to pour forth into the hearts of your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said verse 18 was a major conclusion, and so it is. I think if you read the book of Hebrews, you'll see that clearly. You have a sense that that's the high point. That's the conclusion. And then we have this glorious transition uh, into verses 19 through 25, which are wonderful verses. In fact, I'll read them in a little while. Uh, verses which I love so much, uh, I, I've already preached, uh, well not this year, I think I said that in the morning, it's a new year isn't it, uh, I preached earlier last year, uh, I love those verses and I think we all do, uh, but they are, they are the conclusion uh, or the application that flows out of what is here, the conclusion. The conclusion of what? Well John Calvin says of these verses, uh, verse 18 being the conclusion of the conclusion, but verses 11 through 18 are the conclusion, he says, of the whole argument. And by this, Calvin means the argument begun in chapter 2 about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. If you remember, chapter 1 begins with the testimony of God through his son. He's spoken long ago in many ways through the prophets, but now he's spoken through his son. He tells us who the son is. This is one who's better than angels, chapter 1. Here is the very son of God. Uh, and it was he, chapter 2, we, we read, who became lower than angels as a man. He partook of our nature in order, the end of chapter 2, we discovered, to become our priest. And from there, chapter 2, in his, his human priesthood, uh, we have an argument that is sustained all the way up to this point. Uh, a lengthy consideration of this single topic, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. As many of you have noticed, it is rare to f- find such a thing in Scripture, uh, far more common is a varied uh, topical approach to, to various subjects. If you read the other epistles, you often notice that. Although Romans is a sustained uh, consideration of justification, and not too surprisingly, that's what I hope to preach next. Uh, these detailed treatments are, are, are edifying, but they're difficult because you just have to keep focusing on the same thing over and over and over again. And that's why Spurgeon, uh, actually, as I've told you time and again, uh, decided against preaching straight through books. He thought variety was better. Uh, but let me say, after having gone through this lengthy section and this detailed consideration of a single topic, uh, that I do believe Spurgeon was wrong. Uh, and while I was somewhat afraid to take on such a task, I have found it more rewarding and, and edifying than I ever could have imagined. Is there any topic that is uh, more worth or worthy of our sustained attention and consideration? In fact, in some sense, I have to say that I'm sad. And uh, I will continue to, to make it a point of study. And thankfully, even as we go on, it will continue to be a point of study in this book. What is more precious to the believer than the priesthood of Jesus Christ? I don't think anything is more precious. And especially that we should see him as our great high priest. Not to just consider him generically as a priest, but to say, 
We have such a high priest. I have such a high priest in heaven, uh, even as he is presented here. So I know him to be to me. All along, we have uh, been heeding the exhortation of chapter 3, verse 1. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's what we've been doing. Going back to what he says in chapter 2, comparing Jesus to Moses. Oh, yes, Moses, he says, was a great man, a man, a man worthy of our consideration, uh, as indeed we're doing in the evenings, aren't we? A man greatly used by God. So we read in the first five or, 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 or books two through five of the Bible, Exodus through Deuteronomy. But far better to consider Jesus. Do you realize that this will be our constant task and our eternal happiness in heaven to ever gaze upon the lamb who was slain, to consider him as he is presented here in his priestly office? Uh, let me just read to you something which uh, I, I recently read as I wrapped up my yearly Bible reading. Revelation chapter 5, a glimpse into heaven. And consider uh, the life and the worship of heaven as it's presented here in terms of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of uh, of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all Things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Well, that's the life of heaven. And it's meant to be the life of the church even now. Or listen to John the Baptist when he says at the beginning of John's gospel speaking of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yes, John says, we must behold him. And especially as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so that's what we've been doing. We've been beholding him. We've been adoring him. We've been considering him. Of course, as we've been doing this, we have been exhorted as well. We are concluding, you might say, the didactic portion of of this epistle. That is the teaching section followed by uh, uh, the practical portion to follow. But uh, but as with many of the epistles, uh, the the exhortations come even in the beginning. We have been exhorted uh, to listen, take care how you hear, that you don't harden your hearts in unbelief as Israel did in the wilderness, falling into apostasy. We have been exhorted time and again in light of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, to draw near to the throne of grace that we might find help, uh, grace to help in time of need. And we have been exhorted to beware of the dangers of falling away into apostasy. And these exhortations that have been sprinkled throughout uh, become the focal points of the exhortation or the practical section that follows in chapter 10, verse 19, all the way to the end. Uh, with uh, a happy emphasis we will soon see as well upon worship and faith. So look here at what's being said, the conclusion of the argument, beholding the lamb. The two things he's been doing throughout have been to show what was lacking in the old as well as what was perfected in the new by Christ's priesthood. So that's what he does here. He begins by restating in verse 11 what he's already asserted many times about the old priesthood. That by the very repetition of these sacrifices, there was an obvious indication that sin was never really taken away. 
Verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Uh, this is exactly what he said earlier in verse 3. In those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. Instead of taking away sins, if anything, God was heightening the sense of sin through the ceremonial law, through the moral law, through the civil law. Well, we're considering the ceremonial law here. All of the law that was given in the Old Covenant was a schoolmaster. It was leading man to see his dilemma. It was highlighting his dilemma. It was creating in him, the faithful at least, an eager desire for something better. An atonement, a sacrifice that really did put away sin. Beginning in verse 11, following verse 11, uh, verse 12 I mean, beginning in verse 12, uh, he, he, he then points to the fullness and the satisfying realities that we find in the new covenant. He tells us about Christ and his sacrifice of himself and what he accomplished there on the cross. There we see once more that in offering him in himself, in offering himself, he made, uh, and listen to the precise language, one sacrifice for sins for all time. Now, uh, that is exactly what he's been saying all, uh, ever since chapter 7. Uh, although he hasn't quite put it that way yet. One sacrifice for sins for all time. It is a familiar emphasis, isn't it? The emphasis upon the finality, the once for all character, the perfection, the completeness of his work. The never to be repeated character of his work. Christ in offering in himself never was to offer again. One sacrifice for sins for all time. And that is stated in radical contrast to what was just said of the old covenant priests in verse 11, who stand daily offering, whose work of offering was never finished. And where they could never, to use the language of verse 11, take away sin, something that was patently obvious by their constant repetition, as was stated in verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Again, what is obvious to us now, let us realize was obvious to them then. Their consciences were never cleansed. Sin was never taken away. It remained. This is something that they realized. In contrast to that arrangement, Christ, by his one sacrifice on the cross, takes away sin for all time. What he sacrificed, as we have seen, was not the sacrifices of the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats, but himself. He offered himself. In fulfillment of the eternal covenant of redemption. That is in fulfillment of the covenant between the father and the son from all eternity. In fulfillment, uh, to put it uh, a different way still, using the language of the prior verses, uh, simply of the will of God. The eternal will of God. About which the father and the son have been in agreement for all eternity. Namely, that in his blood there would be redemption for, for the elect. That in him they would be saved and their sins would be forgiven. This has been the will of God for all eternity. A will uh, which the old sacrifices could not express and could not accomplish. In offering himself for our sins, there is, uh, as I have stressed repeatedly, a covenant transaction between the Father and the Son, whereby sin is made to pass. So fully does the cross deal with sin that it is not only forgiven, it is forgotten. This covenant between the Father and the Son, also called His will, is something that the Old Covenant could not express. It could not accomplish. It could not bring to pass. But Christ in His coming, again borrowing from the prior verses, declares verse verse 7, I said, Behold, I have come 
in the scroll of the book it is written written of me to do your will, O God. And as he comes, so God's will comes to pass. His will to pardon and to forgive for all time. In Christ, God no more regards the sinner as sinful. He deals with him now, not according to his sin, but according to Christ's blood, which is infinitely more valuable than anything man could offer. Furthermore, and this is something surely we are meant to see and to appreciate about this transaction between the Son and the Father on the cross, making an offering to God for the people. As a function of this, we know that the Father is well pleased in what he offers. He delights in it perfectly. He is satisfied by it constantly. In fact, nowhere is his love for the Son greater or seen more fully than in that he should become a sacrifice for the sin. I mean, on the cross. It pleased the Father, Isaiah says, to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself a guilt offering. Not as though... The father hated the son, banished the thought. Or once, as I I once read Spurgeon say, as though the father loved us more than the son. No, never. The father's pleasure rests upon the son just as he becomes our savior and perfects our salvation. Just as he takes upon the cross and bears our sin and suffers every stroke of justice our sin deserved, becoming our peace, our guilt offering. For there the Son on the cross displays the perfect glory, uh, displays in the perfect glory the way of salvation and the beauty of God's holiness. He displays a salvation that is worthy of God himself and all that he is in all of his attributes. Uh, as the writer of the Hebrews says, the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 2 verse 10, speaking of God, It was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation. That is Christ through sufferings. It was fitting for God to do this. Here is something that is uh, in accordance with his will. Here is something that is worthy of God himself. A salvation that is not beneath his glory, but according to it. To cause the author of their, of their salvation to perfect, bring many sons to glory through sufferings. A salvation, as I say, which is not beneath his glory, but which rather displays it in perfect colors. And I do not understand the cross unless I find the father's pleasure there. Unless I find there the father's will come to pass. Not as some falsely say that the father there forsaking the son, but rather his love and his pleasure resting upon the son as intensely as ever. Who can read the many interactions between the father and the son in the gospels and come to any other conclusion? Honestly, that the father loves the son and he delights in the son, especially that he should offer himself to the father for our sins. And this is most evident in what follows. That the son should, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sit down at the right hand of God. Using once more the language of Psalm 110. You see, that's the real emphasis here. He, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Indicating, among other things, the father's acceptance and delight in the son and his work of offering. The language that we have here is, in fact, the main burden of the text. If you look at verse 11 and verse 12, you'll notice a simple contrast. 
Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The constant standing in contrast to the forever sitting. And it is uh, uh, the realities of his session that we are meant to see and to consider and to explore. What does it mean for Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, to sit down the right hand of God. Well again it comes to us in in the form of a contrast. Whereas the old priest stood daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices as those whose work was never finished. Christ in his one sacrifice for all time sat down. In other words when you compare his offering to theirs. What you see is not that Christ in offering was called to offer more or again. But what you see is the Father's total acceptance of what he offers. When Christ sat down after he offered, it was the strongest possible indication that his work of offering was finished. And that it was accepted fully by the Father. That his work of atoning for sin was complete and perfect. One indeed who was able to say, unlike the old priest, in my blood there is forgiveness. And of whom the Father could ask or want no more. And so the author here, using the language of Psalm 110, is saying to us, see him there seated on the throne in the holy place. There he ministers to us his grace daily. There too he appears in the presence of God for us as our advocate and surety. Salvation in him is both perfect and certain, meeting no objection from the Father. There he is seated at the right hand of the Father, who together are in agreement about our salvation. That it should reside wholly in his priesthood. And so it does and so it will. But we should also see uh, in, in the language of Christ having taken his seat upon the throne following his work of offering. He has ascended to the Father and is seated at the right hand. The throne of the majesty on high. An indication of rest in contrast to the constant toil and ceaseless labor of the old priests. When Christ takes his seat in heaven, he begins to enjoy his heavenly rest as he did at the beginning of the world. Now he enters his Sabbath rest and offers the same to his people, which is why we have such statements as we do in chapter four. Chapter four describing to us the same realities that faced Israel in the wilderness. What was set before them was not merely their entrance into the promised land, but something far more significant, namely their Sabbath rest. And what the author tells us is that through their unbelief and through their apostasy, they not only failed to enter the land, but they failed to enjoy the heavenly realities that were typified thereby. They failed to enter into heaven itself. So he says a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. It remains the goal still yet unrealized. This is what Christ offers to the church constantly. And it is this that he has gone into heaven and has begun to enjoy. But let us be clear what, what this rest of his involves. It is not a cessation of labor, but only that he should cease to suffer and to offer. Truly, that work is finished. And his rest from that work endures forever, just as his work of creating endures forever. No more will he create, no more will he suffer, no more will he offer. He will forever rest and cease from that labor. His Sabbath rest as the God-man 
will forever involve the glorification and the exaltation of his person as the lamb who was slain for our sins as a perfect work, just as we see in Revelation in chapter five and many other places. And as we find uh, also in other portions of the New Testament, he who was slain for our sin is exalted on high. But we should not understand this heavenly life and his Sabbath rest as one of inactivity any more than we should after the creation of the world. God's Sabbath rest is not the absence of labor. This is one of the, th- the things that the Jews uh, misunderstood about Sabbath. They, they thought that Sabbath meant total inactivity. And that was because they conceived of God's Sabbath as total inactivity, which, uh, which led to innumerable absurdities. How would God continue to rule the world if that were the case? Uh, but, but more importantly, uh, and more pressing in the Gospels, it, it led them to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath when he healed people on the Sabbath. And do you know what Jesus says in response to that? He points to the, the, to the, the realities of God's Sabbath rest. He says, my father labors until now, and I myself am working, or I myself labor. Just as the father is working, so I am working. The Sabbath rest that the Lord entered into on uh, the seventh day, the end of the creation work, was never a life of inactivity. It was simply, as I said, the cessation of another kind of labor and the taking up of a new kind. The life of God in heaven is always active. It is always busy, even though some work is finished forever. And so we know that Christ is not idle as he takes his seat upon the throne in heaven, having offered once for all. The work which he does uh, there, having finished the work of offering, is now a constant one. It is, in particular, as we've seen, the work of intercession. Verse 25 of chapter 7. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Just as he says in contrast uh, to that, the once for all offering, verse 27 who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own son's sins, uh, then for the sins of the people. Because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't go into heaven to offer again and again. That work is finished. Uh, and his Sabbath rest it consists in a constant enjoyment of the benefits uh, of that work, that finished work. A continual presentation of that work, a constant work of intercession. So too, involved in that work of intercession is his daily ministering grace to the saints from heaven. Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 4. But the real burden of his session and his labors in heaven, that is his being seated at the right hand of God, that is being stressed here, is that he should reign. Verse 13. Having sat down at the right hand of God, verse 12, verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Once again, using the language of Psalm 110. The emphasis thus far uh, throughout has been his priesthood and that will immediately coming back to verse 14 as the argument resumes be the priesthood but for one verse verse 13 we find a different uh, argument a more complete picture of this priest there as he is seated he is not only helping and protecting his church leading her onward into heaven making her salvation certain he is also we read reigning from heaven in fulfillment of psalm 110 he like melchizedek is not only a priest but he is a king 
And there in Psalm 110, as he is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, he is also a king whose reign knows no end. In fact, if you were to read Psalm 110 again, as we read earlier, you would notice the real burden of the psalm is that this Messiah will be an eternal king. And only one verse speaks of his priesthood, verse 4. And so it is the eternity of each that is stressed in that psalm. Verse 4, he is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5, he will reign until he places every enemy beneath his feet. Now that he has taken his seat at the right hand of the Father, this is what becomes apparent to us. What we see is that his reign will not grow dimmer with time, but brighter. And certainly because of this, it will know no end. And so both of these are statements of stability and eternity as well as of perfection and completeness. The finality of what he brings is what is stressed in both of these statements. Again, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek as well as he must reign until he places every enemy beneath his feet. As nothing is lacking in his priesthood, so nothing will be found lacking in his kingdom. Especially as it appears to us on the last day. But what we must try to appreciate and understand is that, like his priesthood, his reign is hidden. For him to take his throne in heaven is for him to rule out of sight, literally. Along with this is an element of delay. Again, verse 13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. The element of delay. For just as he progressively gathers his church, leading them onward into heaven, So too does he bide his time as a king, suffering the evil of an evil world, waiting not to rule, but to make his rule visible. But the day will come when he will appear for all to see as a king, as the New Testament constantly emphasized. Now he rules out of sight. Soon he will appear in plain view for all. And when he appears on the last day, the church will know him as her perfect savior. Verse 28 of chapter 9. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. It will be to us, he says, who are looking forward to his coming, a day of joy and gladness. But his enemies will be thoroughly subdued. A day for them of woe. Just as fully as he put away sin by his one, uh, his once for all offering of himself, so he will, he will subdue his enemies with a swift and perfect victory on that day. They will find no more power to resist him then, nor to deny his power. Uh, to quote Psalm 110 a little more fully, verses 5 through 7, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Again, a day of terrible woe for the unbelieving. But a day of gladness and great rejoicing for the church. Rejoicing both in his perfect salvation and his perfect judgment. Here is a priest who is also a king. Let us realize fully what his session involves. But from this it follows in verse 14 that in him our salvation is perfect and complete. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. How clearly this appears to us 
the more we consider him as he now is seated on the throne at the right hand of the father, seen there both in the perfection of his priesthood and in his rule as a king. And the more we consider Jesus like this, that is, as he now is, the more confident we will become as to our own salvation. For that is really the emphasis here in verse 14. It is not simply the perfection of himself as our savior, but the perfection of the salvation that we enjoy as those who are his. He is a perfect savior and therefore the salvation he offers must be perfect as well. And if I am his, then the salvation I enjoy must be perfect. Indeed, I in the eyes of God must be perfect by one offering He has perfected all time. Those who are sanctified again, even me, if I if I am his. The idea here is that he did this once for all by a single offering. He is truly able to make perfect those who draw near through him. His sacrifice did what no other sacrifice could. It brought in true holiness. It made the sinner's place in the presence of God an acceptable one. He has dealt with sin so fully and so finally that nothing less than perfection is what is true of me if I am his. What he has sought, he has attained, namely my salvation. Again, that is what is being said. By one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That is, those who are sanctified by his blood. Those for whom he stands in heaven as a priest. And how can I doubt that I am his? And that I too am sanctified and perfected by his blood. That is, one of his sheep. When I hear his voice. That is, when I hear in him the voice of the good shepherd. Listen to what he says in John chapter 10. Uh, which has been for us a constant point of comparison. Jesus speaking of his relation to the sheep. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 11. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish and no one can snatch, will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. You see here how tenderly Christ speaks of his relation to the sheep. That is his people or as the writer of the Hebrews says. Those who are sanctified. Those for whom he stands and ministers in heaven as a priest. And let me ask you. In seeking to answer the question. Am I one of his sheep? Do you, de- do you delight that it should be so? In reading John 10, do you rejoice along with the Father that Christ should lay down his life for his own, uh, perfecting them for all time? Well, let that be your assurance. For no one ever rejoiced that the Father should crush the Son, but the Father and the Son, along with those whom the Father gave the Son. Just as Jesus expresses in John 10, as well as in John 17. To everyone else, Uh, What we are considering, the good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep and giving to them as a result a salvation that is perfect and complete, one which no one can ever rob from God or from them, is a strange mystery. It is even in the eyes of the Jews to this day a rock of offense, a blasphemous suggestion that God should take on flesh and lay down his life for his own. And yet here is for us. The good news of the gospel, which we have been considering again and again and again, finding salvation in uh, the bleeding of our savior upon the cross. 
And so uh, thinking in terms of the relationship as we have uh, been doing between Christ and his own. We recognize that all who are his delight to know it is so. We read John 10, we read the book of Hebrews, and we find the greatest possible delight and satisfaction along with the Father. It not only pleases the Father to crush the Son, but it pleases us, we find in our hearts. We delight, I say, that the Son, our Good Shepherd, should lay down his life for us, and that he should give us as a result an eternal salvation which no one can rob from us. And so we read these words in John with intense joy and love for the Savior. And so let me suggest to you that we are not meant to be in such difficulty over such questions, such as, am I one of his sheep or am I one of those who are sanctified? Not if we love the shepherd and delight in his work of offering. He says, they know my voice and I lead them and they love to follow me. There is what a disciple is, plain and simple. Our delight in these things. That he should be our good shepherd is our salvation, just as it is our assurance. There is only one way to be sure, beloved, and it is not by asking, am I one of his sheep? That kind of self-preoccupation will never yield an invincible assurance of faith as he commends to us. And what I have said as the focal point of the epistle, chapter 6, verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. I want you to be fully assured all the way to the end of your lives. Never lacking in this assurance. Well, as I say, we'll never get there by asking, am I one of his sheep? Our certainty and our confidence that we are his sheep only comes, I say again, as we see him as the good shepherd. Indeed, that is the thought, the only thought which dispels all doubts and gives the believer a true assurance and invincible faith. For who can believe in Christ and not at the same time believe that he really does perfect for all time those who are sanctified? Verse 14. The more we behold him in his perfection, the more it will appear to us that perfection flows to all who are his, even us. Now, from this, in verses 15 through 17, he goes on to quote his other favorite passage, not Psalm 110, but Jeremiah 31, reminding us of the two cardinal blessings of the new covenant, namely sanctification and justification. This is what he says. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind. I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Sanctification and justification. As neither blessing could be found under the old covenant, so both, he tells us, are found in perfect measure in the new covenant, which Christ inaugurates by shedding his blood and dying upon the cross. And here he says, speaking of the Old Testament, is the testimony of the Holy Spirit in the days of Jeremiah. Here is the Holy Spirit speaking to the church, telling the church to look for these blessings, not in the shadows of the old covenant, but in the dawning of a new covenant. And what he is especially stressing here, as we will discover in a moment from verse 18, was how the Holy Spirit indicates or testifies to us That these things would be found, especially that God would remember our sins no more. The great question in light of this prophecy was how, if not by the blood of bulls and goats, 
if not by the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant, how was it precisely that God would make sin to pass? Well, here, our author tells us. What the Holy Spirit was saying so long ago was this. That in order for there to be true forgiveness, there must also be a true sacrifice that puts away sin. In other words, when he said that he would remember our sins no more, what he was really saying is that there would be an offering which was capable of affecting this. That was the testimony of the Holy Spirit, even in the Old Testament. He taught those saints to look forward to a perfect work of atonement in which they would find along with us a true remission of sin uh, because they knew as well as we the inflexible principle of God. Chapter nine, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. And so in the promise of true forgiveness, he taught them to look forward to a perfect work of offering. And so verse 18 is a fitting conclusion to the whole argument as it expresses along with verse 14 the finality and the perfection of Christ one sacrifice for sins for all time. For by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 14 then quotes Jeremiah 31 and concludes now where there is forgiveness of these things there's no longer any offering for sin. Did you think that that would be the conclusion to the whole whole argument? Well there it is. In bringing in forgiveness what Jesus achieved, and this is what he's been laboring to enable us to see all along, what he achieved was not only your salvation, but he brought an end to all the sacrifices. Here is a sacrifice which really does atone for sin, just as the Holy Spirit told us we would find in the new covenant. And where there is true atonement, there is forgiveness. And where there is forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. That's the argument. That is what the, the Holy Spirit told us in advance. That in bringing in true remission, he would bring the sacrifices to an end. Not by those same sacrifices, but by a better and a perfect sacrifice. As Philip Edgecombe Hughes says, a sacrifice to end all sacrifice. And all that is left for us to do, having seen this, and having considered it so fully uh, and uh, for such a sustained period of time is to apply and to work out the implications of this thought. If Christ has really so fully uh, put away sin that he has put away every sacrifice, what then is left for me to do? Uh, these, these are implications which are immediately spelled out in chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Let me read them as we'll consider them next time. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see what he's doing there. That is, as I already said, a favorite passage of mine, but he is applying this thought. He is bringing uh, this rich and edifying and lofty thought into the practical realm. Implications uh, there spelled out. They'll be spelled out for the rest of the book. Uh, Let me also note they are spelled out week by week at the table. What it means for Christ to put away sin once for all by one sacrifice of himself. 
What we find is this, beloved. And, and as we see, this immediately becomes the emphasis. And this becomes the idea for us to work out as fully as we can. We find Christ in heaven, or excuse me, we find in Christ heaven open to us. And an invitation to join him there now by faith and soon in solid existence as we end this earthly pilgrimage. The whole goal, as I said, set before the believer is that we along with Christ might enter our Sabbath rest. Not like the wilderness community falling in unbelief in the wilderness as our faith is constantly being tried and tested. And the question that is constantly set before the church is, will you believe and will you hold fast your confession? And will you make it all the way to the end? And then how can I ever hope to do that? Only by holding fast to Jesus. And then let us see every blessing this involves, what it means to have Christ in heaven standing there for us for all time. That is what we must go on to work out. Let each of us feel uh, in ourselves an earnest desire, having been taken up uh, for so long with thoughts of his priesthood, to see that this has a real practical effect on our lives. Otherwise, uh, let me say with a word of warning, and we'll see this immediately following the verses I just read, beginning in verse 26, the dangers of apostasy will ever confront us. Amen. I would now invite the elders to join me at the church. At the table, I think I said at the church. Well, I want to read those verses I just alluded to. Uh, But let me first read the words of institution. When the hour had come, this is Luke 22, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and uh, after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the son of man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Now, listen, I I began to apply uh, what he said in verses 19 through 25. He tells us, I want you to draw near. I want you to gather together. I want you to encourage each other, especially as the day is drawing near. We want to get to heaven. We don't want to fall short. But then he warns us about the dangers of falling short uh, immediately in verse 26. And listen to this and think of it in terms of how it might apply to the Lord's table. For if we go on sinning, verse 26, willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? 
For we know him who said vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well. What we have to realize. And we see this in Luke 22. We find at the last supper I mean. When the Lord's Supper was instituted. As they were observing the Passover. And I look forward to beginning to consider that this evening. The Passover in Exodus. And as we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 10 is that the blood of Christ confronts us with both realities at the same time. And this is something that Hebrews constantly points out to us. We find in his blood an invincible assurance and a salvation which is certain and which no one can rob of us. But at the same time, so precious is his blood, we are reminded of the dangers of apostasy that also confront the church. And those twin dangers are always present, especially at the table. And the reason I can say that is because they were present the first time the Lord's Supper was observed. You had 11 faithful disciples and one apostate. And so Jesus highlights that there in pointing to the the blood of the covenant in which we find forgiveness. The blood of the new covenant uh, sacramentally symbolized at the table. There the dangers of apostasy were before our eyes to see. And it's one of the saddest things we can ever consider. Those who claim the blood of Christ who then go on uh, sinning willfully and profaning that blood. We are dealing with that which is most precious and most holy to God and ought to be to us, namely the blood of Christ. And there is simply no way to deal with it uh, except as that which is holy. And if we do not, if we profane that blood, now coming into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where we are warned to examine ourselves and to partake in a worthy manner, for we are meant to discern the body and the blood of our Lord. What he's saying is that by faith, we are dealing with holy things. And if we are unable or unwilling to deal with them as that which is holy, then we come in an unworthy manner, whether by our willful sinning or by our unbelief, to use the language of Hebrews chapter 10. And so those twin realities confront us even now. Yes, assurance. But on the other end of the spectrum, apostasy. And that is what the table clarifies for us. Do you have faith? Or or is it just an illusion? And so, I don't know what more I can say, but I'm not trying to discourage a single one of you. But I don't want any of you to partake in an unworthy manner at the same time. The real issue is, again, do you have faith? As Hebrews 11 above all, will clarify to us. Do you find salvation in his blood? Uh, and with those words, let me, uh, let me pray. Father in heaven, we uh, are grateful for the table of the Lord's Supper. We acknowledge we are dealing with holy things, things which at once terrify and, and, and enliven us. And we ask you that we would, uh, conscious as we are of the, de- of, the, of the dangers of apostasy, that we would hold fast more closely to Christ and that we would find in this, sacri- this uh, sacrament uh, something which is really precious to us, delighting that Christ, our shepherd, should lay down his life for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name. Give this bread to you.
Our Lord Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup and having given thanks, as has been done in his name, he gave it to his disciples as I ministering in his name, give this cup to you. And as a reminder, the outer ring is wine, the inner rings are grape juice. Our Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Now as we close out our worship, let's stand together and sing hymn number 187.
receive now the Lord's blessing, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.